Well, it's great, to, it's great to be here tonight. Obviously, a lot of people have a lot of questions. There must be 10 people in the audience right now. So this is very exciting, very exciting, very exciting. Um, I know I'm excited to be here. I know my inbox is excited for me to be here. So maybe the questions will stop, maybe a little bit. Um, by the way, if any of you have any last-minute questions, you can text your questions to um, 609-414-1001. Uh, now, to be clear, that's not my number, and that's not Steve's number. I have no idea whose number that is. It's somebody in New Jersey, and I thought it'd be fun for them to just receive a lot of theological questions at one in the morning their time. So please, send all of your questions that away. It'll be great. Uh, so, Steve, uh, you've been a little busy lately. Yes. Uh, always busy. <laughs> uh, I, I was wondering if you just start there, just tonight, um, because you kind of talked about the same subject matter with the men and the women at the, the various retreats, although the men's retreat isn't technically a retreat. Um, it's more of a, of a weekend celebration, we'll call it. Uh, if you could just kind of give some just kind of final thoughts, what, what would you say to someone that has, that is, that is, has heard all this Bible study plans, um, but they're feeling a little bit overwhelmed and intimidated. Maybe they just got a Bible to come to this retreat, and now they're overwhelmed and discouraged. What would you say to encourage that individual? Well, yeah, the, um, the, the women's retreat originally was going to be the only place I was going to do this, uh, this topic of Bible study and meditation. And then I realized all of the ladies in the church were going to get ahead of their husbands, and, and then it would be my fault. And uh, so we didn't want that. Um, <clears throat> I'm a bit of a history buff when it comes to the the Bible church movement. And the Bible church movement in the United States is is very important. It's dear to my own heart. Um, It is really the the birthplace of the typical church that will go verse by verse through a Bible book and uh, and explain it. You know, older Bible churches in the 40s, 50s, and 60s were... Uh, notoriously dry and everybody loved it. You're just going word by word, verse by verse. And we needed that to counteract um, liberal theology, which was just all over the map. But along with that um, has come a, what, what I would say, an over-reliance on preaching that as long as I'm hearing good preaching and the more sermons, the better, and I obviously believe that, as long as I'm hearing good preaching, then I'm going to grow spiritually. And, and I do believe that. But what got left behind was the, the Puritan idea that preaching is just the beginning of application. Preaching is just the, the, that which provokes your own study of the Bible. It provokes your uh, meditation on the Word. And really, as I was praying through uh, doing these two retreats, my prayer for our church is that we're one that not only loves the Word of God gathered together, we love the preached Word, um, but that we're characterized as those that will take the time to sit down and open our own Bibles and not just have the obligatory quiet time where I'm reading a chapter or two, but to actually dig into the Word. And that's really much more in line with historic Christianity. Now you read uh, lay Christians from centuries past who, who just wrote, and you, you get some of their journals, and you say, these are like Bible scholars, but all they are are regular Christians who spent their lives in the Word of God and meditating on the Word. And so I guess my encouragement um, is, as we've said to both the men and women, to just start small. And once you begin to see the benefits in your own life and get into a routine and spend your time and even spend your money on those things that are most important to you, 
um, it, it will become a lifestyle. Um, for me, uh, studying the Word and meditating on it really became a lifestyle when I started college. And in fact, some of my grades suffered because I probably spent more time studying the Bible than studying for my English exams, which I just didn't care about. Um, so the encouragement is start small, but just start. Just start. Um, because there's never, you know, what, what, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? I think there should be an urgency in our own hearts. But um, one of the tips we gave was to get some really good deep writing. Uh, the, the Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs or the Valley of Vision, uh, these uh, Puritan prayers put together by Arthur Bennett. Um, those immediately just get your mind in lofty places and helps you as you are uh, working through Scripture. And it, and it teaches us... Um, I, I, one of my biggest concerns for the church, and, and even I never want to see our church go down this road, is that we're taught to be consumers. We're taught to be customers and serve my needs. And so what that means is that the church is constantly fighting this battle against uh, offering bite-sized, well-packaged little pieces of truth instead of understanding that this is, this is God we're talking about. We're not going to package him. We're not going to uh, put him into a 15-minute little sermonette for Christianettes. So the encouragement is just start. And one of my reasons for doing this a little more publicly with men and women is, is simply uh, you can hold each other accountable um, to, to ask one another, so what are you studying? Not just where are you reading in the Word of God, but what are you studying these days? So just start. That's my encouragement. Thank you. Thank you. That's helpful, I'm sure, for many. Um, there's no good way to transition here. Uh, here's just a bunch of random questions that I received, and I just picked the favorite ones. And I, I did reword some of these just because some of them were similar. So you may, some of you may hear your question hinted at. Maybe not. Maybe I poorly re-asked it. But so, so here it goes, right? A real abrupt shift. We're going from sixth <laughs> gear to twelfth gear. Um, that's not a gear. Uh, I know that. Um, so is foreknowledge in Romans 8.29, just God seeing who would have faith in the future and picking them for salvation. Explain to us foreknowledge. Okay, so that's the, that's the classic verse that people want to kind of hang all of the doctrine of election on, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of, of God. So I'll, we can do the technicalities, but I, really there's a bigger issue. The, the technicalities... Um, foreknew, uh, the Greek word prognosko, which just means to know beforehand, that, that's where the argument comes from. Well, he just knew beforehand who was going to choose him. Uh, if that's all we're going on, the universe comes apart. And let me explain that in just a minute, because that, that can't be everything. But it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Praorizo, which means to determine beforehand. That's way different. That's, that's totally different. You put those two together. Um, the reason I say that the universe would come apart if, it, if God was just knowing who would believe, that means that God is not completely in control of everything. If God is not completely in control of everything, then Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 that says that God upholds everything by the word of his power um, can't be true. And if those aren't true, then the very molecules of the universe come apart. So uh, I think the bigger issue for that in Romans 8.29, the doctrine of election, predestination, doesn't, doesn't stand or fall on that one verse. Uh, not even close. Uh, I, I would say that 
among all the doctrinal issues, the doctrine of election is, frankly, among the easiest to prove, uh, the easiest to argue, because it's everywhere. And uh, John MacArthur noted recently that every Q&A he does, somebody asks about election or predestination. Um, The bigger issue for me is that the reason that's even a question, the reason that's even a, a concern is not because it's an obscure doctrine or that it's very, very difficult to understand. That's not the reason. I preached a sermon a few months ago showing the, the sovereign choice of God in every single book of the Bible. Um, you, could go to, uh, you could go to Romans 8 that you just cited, uh, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, 1 Peter 1, um, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Um, uh, you could go to First uh, Peter uh, in multiple places has some reference to the choice of God. You can go all the way back to the Old Testament. Genesis 12, God chose Abraham. Um, God chose Israel. All of that. So proving the doctrine of election isn't the hard part. The, the reason this is a question is because human beings don't want to believe the doctrine of election. And if I could say this, the, um, the, the, the choice that seems to be put before us is really a false dichotomy. The false dichotomy is this. Well, if you believe in the doctrine of election that, that God chose beforehand those who would be saved, then all the people who want to be saved but aren't chosen would, would, would be you know, sad. They would be horrified that they're going to hell even though they wanted to be saved. That category of person doesn't exist. There is no category of person that wants to be saved but is not chosen. Jesus said, come unto me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Um, so the, the question is not how can we prove it from Scripture. It's, it's easily proven from Scripture. The question is why do I not want to believe it? And once you have embraced the doctrines of grace and understood the doctrine of election, it, it's a terrific comfort. It's a great comfort to us because um, now you're, you get out of the realm of judging God. Because let, let's put the real words on it. When somebody wants to say, well, I have a hard time believing that. First of all, who cares what you believe? That doesn't make it true or not. The reason you have a hard time believing that is because you have actually begun to stand in judgment over God. You know what I have a hard time believing? Is that God chose anyone whatsoever. So uh, the technicalities of the doctrine of election are are obviously able we're able to prove that fairly easily um but the false dichotomy is this well if you have a doctrine of election then that means human choice and responsibility doesn't matter that we're all just robots scripture does not present it that way um scripture presents election the choice of god and humility or the the choice of man they go together they are together How is it that I can choose to be saved? I can only choose to be saved because the Holy Spirit regenerated my heart to make that choice, but God's the one who initiated it. And so we like to say that those like two parallel tracks that come close together in Scripture, but they never meet. You just believe both. God chose those He's going to choose, and those that are saved are saved because they believe God. They obeyed God. And I love this passage in John 6, because in John 6, 37... You have the doctrine of election. All that the Father gives me will come to me. What is that? That's God's choice. God is, has given Jesus Christ a list of people. 
These are the ones that are to come to you. And Jesus said, every one of them will. That's the comfort of the doctrine of election. But then in verse 35, two verses before, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. That's human responsibility. You must believe. You must have faith. And you say, well, how can those both be? In verse 29, he does them both at the same time. Jesus answered and said to him, this is the work of God, election, that you believe in him who is, he has sent. That's human responsibility. So believe them both and, and find glory in it. But I, I've, never, I've never really understood why that's been difficult to believe. I think it is a heart issue. It's not certainly a Bible study issue because I, I think a first-year Bible college student can prove the doctrine of election pretty easily. So. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you used 12 minutes on that question. You've got, you got to pick it up a little bit. But I, that's why I'm Sorry here. about that's that. That's why I'm here. Uh, we, we'll go fast. I got a, no, just kidding. I'm joking. That was great. Thank you. Uh, we, we got a number of questions on kind of primary, secondary issues. Uh, how do we determine fellowship with other believers? Um, I know Al Mohler mm-hmm. kind of talks about theological triage. That's an old term. But it is said that churches can disagree on secondary issues while still agreeing on like core uh, beliefs or primary issues like the gospel or the deity of Christ. Um, what do you think of all that? Um, and do you have fellowship with pastors uh, with whom you don't agree with? And how do you determine? I don't think I have fellowship with pastors that I agree with on everything anywhere because, you know, from, from little tiny issues to, even to me, big right? giant ones. Even me. Even, even you, yeah. But fortunately, I signed your paycheck, so that makes it a. <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, yeah, probably um, my closest, outside of our church body, my closest friend in this town, we're about as opposite theologically as you can get. And we do fellowship together. We enjoy each other. I had lunch with them last week, um, as a matter of fact. Um, so where do, you, where do you draw the line there? I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with the whole idea of primary and secondary theological issues. I think that Isaiah, for example, would, would say, hey, I... I, as we mentioned this morning, I got sawn in two for some of these secondary issues here. Um, so all theology is important. There's no unimportant doctrinal issue. Um, but I think maybe a good way to put that, here's the clearest dividing line. Those things which will prevent you from going to heaven if you believe them are a primary issue. That you must believe the deity of Christ. You must believe in substitutionary atonement. You must believe that... Uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that there, that, that there is no other way to the Father. Um, you must believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. If you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, then you're, you're drawing from other sources for truth, and that's, that's heresy. So that's the biggest dividing line. Um, I, I would say the two big ones we could put under the categories of soteriology and bibliology. And soteriology, if you don't believe that which is necessary to be saved, I, I can't have fellowship with you as a fellow believer. I can hang out with you. I can go bowling with you and whatever, but I'm not going to call you a Christian. If you don't believe in the deity of Christ, you're not a Christian. Um, so the soteriological issues, uh, frankly, those have been um, already kind of laid down for us by the reformers. They told us where our point of fellowship is, that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. That's what we believe. And that's what you fellowship on. Where it begins to get dicey, are all the, the issues that 
uh, come up like, uh, uh, do we live on the young earth or an old earth? Uh, should women be pastors or and elders in the church or not? Uh, should, <clears throat> should we deal with this whole gender issue? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we feel sorry for these kids that are having what they call gender dysphoria? Shouldn't we help them and, and, and go along with them? All of those seemingly unrelated issues boil down to one issue. Do you believe that the Bible is inerrant and authoritative or not? And that's where we, we divide. If somebody wants to engage me in a, in a debate over gender dysphoria, I, I'm like, that's not even a biblical concept. You're drawing from outside the Bible. I don't recognize your right to do that. Um, young earth, old earth. That's not a biblical debate. That's a debate about whether you believe the Bible or not. So that's a, that's a huge issue. Um, so if, if any issue falls in the category of, I don't actually believe what the scripture says, I'm going to reinvent it according to my culture, um, then I'm going to divide with you there. That, that doesn't mean I'm not going to say hi to you if I run into you in Walmart, um, but you're not preaching to my pulpit um, at all, and you won't be a member here if you affirm things that are uh, antithetical to the inerrancy of scripture. So uh, there, there's a whole list of, do we agree on this or disagree on that? Uh, and you can go down that list, but if it falls into the category of soteriology or bibliology, that really helps you um, determine. Now, with our, for example, our uh, brothers in the covenant theology camp, and we talk about that a lot because we're, we're probably the most openly dispensational church in, in Kern County that I know of, because um, we, we talk about it a lot. Um, probably the major difference we have with them is really a difference of priority, it's not something that, that hinders our fellowship. Um, they would make soteriology the top, of the, the top of the pyramid theologically. How you are saved is everything. And, you know, our, our covenant theology brothers have been the number one staunch defenders of the biblical gospel for 500 years. There's no denying that. And, and I love that. And we've said this before. There's no such thing as a seeker-sensitive covenantal church. Because they're, they're all about the gospel. Soteriology is everything. And if you talk to them, they, many of them would say eschatology um, and uh, secondary matters like that are kind of a little bit lower of a priority. Where we would come at this from a different angle is to say that the, the top of the theological pyramid is not soteriology, it's doxology, the glory of God. And all other theology falls under that. Soteriology gives glory to God. Eschatology gives glory to God. Our ecclesiology gives glory to God. So that, that would just be a difference of, of the way you look at things. Um, for me, when somebody says, well, eschatology isn't as important as soteriology, I would disagree with that because eschatology is where your soteriology ends up, right? It, it tells you what the end game is for your salvation. So... You know, uh, the Apostle John said to not even have a meal with a false teacher. Somebody who disagrees with you on a matter that's not, uh, that's not going to make a difference whether you go to heaven or not, and it's not a matter of believing the Bible or not, but simply how you're interpreting a, a, a portion of Scripture, that's not, that's not something you break fellowship with uh, over. But somebody who denies Scripture, denies... Um, Proper ecclesiology, where the, the church is the bride of Christ, not a, not a customer service organization. 
those are, those are guys we can't really have meaningful fellowship with. I mean, I can have a cup of coffee with them, but what are we going to talk about? We believe totally different things. So hope that's helpful. Yeah, thank you. I think that answered a lot of the questions that we received in that category. Um, and I know you're just starting the Millennium Series, but there was, there was a number of questions. And, and you'll probably answer this in the, the natural exposition of that topic, but maybe you could just paint for us um, just kind of like... I got a lot of questions like differences and similarities between, you know, the future age. So we could define our terms a little bit here. Um, there might be the, the current age, the church age, or you could, you know, um, the um, intermediate state. That's where believers are right now in heaven. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Um, and then there's also the millennial kingdom and then the eternal state. Um, so I'm trying to phrase this question in a helpful way, but could you give us like an example of how the millennial kingdom um, differs and compares to our current age? And then could you give us an example of maybe how the eternal uh, state will differ and compare to the millennial kingdom? Does that make sense? Well, it's like, like an there, ordination exam. All is right. There, yeah. <laughs> Vengeance. Uh, there, uh, <laughs> is, is, there, is there broad differences? Are there, are there lots of, is there a lot of, uh, continuity between all those ages. So I, I, what's helpful to start with is to, I, I always like to start with how am I going to think about a particular topic. And I think the best way to think about that is, is to think much more in terms of continuity than discontinuity. To think in terms of what's going to be similar. Um, and probably the easiest way to figure out what God's in game is, what his goal is, is go back and read Genesis 1 and 2. Um, Genesis 1 and 2 is one of our greatest insights into what the new earth, new Jerusalem, new heavens and all that will be like because it is, um, this is called God's redemptive plan for a reason. He's redeeming, purchasing back what was original. Uh, so, but to get more technical, um, the current age, let's, let's talk about the discontinuities first of all. There are, there are some things that will be missing or different in the millennial kingdom. Um, some things that will be missing. Unrighteous governments, uh, as we talked about today, and that'll be missing. Um, other things that will be missing will be uh, a lack of belief in Christ. Everybody will believe in Christ, either savingly or, or not savingly, but they'll believe in Him. Why? Because He's here. Um, so th- there will be a few differences there. There, there, won't be, uh, there won't be the resurgence of all these worldwide religions Um, this will be a a christian world not that god forces everyone to be christians but that that is the ethic by which we live you have the glorified believers Um, this is something that'll be different we'll have glorified believers in resurrected eternal bodies living alongside and ruling over non-glorified people both believers and their descendants who are unbelievers Um, living in the same world. And you say, well, how can that be? Well, we have 40 days of that happening with the Lord Jesus Christ um, living on this earth and even uh, eating and drinking with his disciples. So showing that he he lived right with them and was able to coexist with them in a glorious way. Um, But there will be some some differences. There there are glorious differences. There will be a change in topography. Jerusalem will be the, the highest of all the mountains. There will be at least one new river, one that comes out of the throne room of God, uh, proceeding downward toward the Dead Sea and the other direction toward the Mediterranean called the Great Sea. 
um, in Scripture. Uh, there, there will be um, a, a glorious understanding that nations do serve Christ. And if they don't serve Christ, there will be difficulties for them. And, and I think probably one of the questions is, would go along the lines of, well, shouldn't there just be all happiness in the millennial kingdom? We're getting there. It's a step in the right direction. But there will be mourning, there will be crying in the millennial kingdom because there's still sin. There won't be glorified believers who are sinning. You won't be sinning. You'll be, you'll be perfected. But descendants of the survivors of the great tribulation will still be sinning and therefore there is mourning and there is crying. Um, Isaiah 65 says that, that it'll be a shame, it'll be sad because an unbeliever died at the age of 100. So you have many, many continuities, things that are improved. You, you still have vineyards and farms and an economy. You have nations. You have, uh, you have people, uh, non-glorified people, marrying, being given in marriage, having children, having grandchildren. And these blessings are just elevated from what we have today, um, but with Christ reigning on the earth. So what's the reason for that? I, I think this is a big question and sometimes... Um, uh, our amillennial brethren will say, well, the millennial kingdom doesn't serve any purpose. Psalm 110 says it, se- it serves the purpose of uh, putting all the nations under the, the foot of Christ until they're his footstool. This is Christ's victory over the world. His victory at the cross was victory over, the, over sin. This is his victory literally over the world. He'll uh, have Satan... Uh, bound for that thousand years, but then he'll be released. And many of the descendants of the non-glorified survivors of the Great Tribulation will rise up at Satan's uh, behest for one last rebellion. Jesus will crush that rebellion. And what happens then? 1 Corinthians 15, his work has been done and he presents a perfected kingdom to God his Father as, as a gift. Or if he could rise above all of this, all of redemptive history I hate to say it, is not about you. It's about the Trinity. It's about God the Father glorifying His Son, elevating His Son, giving Him honor and glory and the kingdom because He was obedient to go to the cross uh, all the way to death, even death on the cross. And the Lord Jesus Christ in turn turning around and presenting to His Father the gift of millions and millions of perfected worshipers who will worship Him for all eternity. So really, the, the... the redemptive plan of God is really all about God and Him glorifying Himself. You get to the eternal state now. Now there is no sin, no more crying, no more mourning, no more sinners. The great white throne judgment has happened. Um, and yet, there's still continuity. There's still rivers, there's nations, there's trees, there's farms, there's vineyards, uh, a glorious new world, a, a new Jerusalem that's going to take a million years to explore um, I, if you read Revelation 21, New Jerusalem is like, it, it's so thrilling. I mean, it's, if you've been to Disneyland, you, you won't want to go to Disneyland once you read Revelation 21. Um, so, so God's work has been progressive. And the millennial kingdom, put it this way, way better than today. All the best of this world will be there, highly elevated. Much of the worst of this world will be either eradicated or diminished. Um, and then in the, the final state, then everything is perfected and the, the redemptive plan is done at that point. That's a fast answer. I cool. Think. That was good. Uh, hope you were all taking notes. I wasn't. Uh, 
We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Uh, so, so automobiles, technology, always a favorite question. What do you think? Millennial Kingdom, no, no technology, uh, technology? We're, uh, we're, uh, we're venturing into the realm of what <laughs> I think, um, which isn't that useful. But if we just put our, our uh, sanctified brains on for a minute, um, most technology we have today is to save time, Right? Or to make something convenient, um, we we have automobiles uh, because that helps us to go farther distances. Well, when you have a thousand years, I mean, really, time doesn't make that much difference. Um, however, that said, mankind has also been built to develop and to have dominion over the earth. Um, I tend to think we won't need technology. You, you remember how Jesus traveled around sometimes in his glorified body. He just went from one place to the other. Um, but he also walked for the pure enjoyment of the walking. So I don't know. Uh, I tend to think technology will be, will be diminished. And that's in dispensational circles. That's a, a huge area of discussions. Are, are the, the, the spears and the swords of uh, the book of Revelation actually nuclear bombs and missiles? And I don't know. Um, by the time you kill half of mankind and poison the waters of the earth and the sun is darkened, and hailstones are falling to the earth. Um, infrastructure, bye. You know, there's no infrastructure at that point. So um, if, if you're in the Great Tribulation, you need some camping skills, uh, most likely. But, uh, so I don't know. I don't know. It'll be interesting. Um, I, I, I don't think that what we perceive as a need today will be perceived as a need then. So since we're talking about this... Um... Sleeping. What about sleeping? Do you think sleeping is going to be around in the millennial kingdom? You know, that's, that's very interesting. Um, we will have glorified bodies. There's not a record of Jesus in his glorified body unless I'm missing something. There's not a record of him sleeping. But um, sleep is not a part of the curse. Um, sleep is a, is a blessed thing. Uh, working hard is a blessed thing. Um, also, you know, the reason we lose sleep and I lose sleep um, I don't sleep as much as I should because I want to use the time for other things. I, you know, the old saying is I can sleep when I'm dead. Um, but in the millennial kingdom, I'll have all the time in the world. Um, the sleep is seen in Scripture as a blessing. It's very rarely ever seen as a curse unless it's uh, the word picture of death. Um, but I think about Psalm 4.8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So... You know, that's the old question, will, in, will I get tired uh, in the millennial kingdom? I, I, I don't know, but I know we'll eat and I know we'll act like regular human beings. And being tired is not a sign of the curse. Being tired is a sign that you've worked, that you've done something. So um, I don't know. Uh, wake me up and we'll find out. It's a... I, I, I think I'll just end it there. I won't ask you about cats because we all know. <laughs> we all know. Um, uh, what about the um, age of accountability? Is this a biblical concept? Uh, and what, at what age um, are people accountable? The age of accountability. Well, this, this question obviously is a, it's a concern for parents. Um, you know, grandparents, you, you see your, your two-year-old and you think, this kid is just rotten. I mean, he is just like Satan's best friend here, and you, and you hope and pray that maybe the Lord won't hold his sin against him. So 
the age of accountability is kind of a misnomer. That's a, a man-made term. I think a better term uh, would be the age at which a child is able to resist evil, refuse evil, and choose what's good. That, that is an age. Uh, Deuteronomy 1.39 and uh, Isaiah 7.16 both use that phrase. The, the age that a child is able to refuse that which is evil and to choose that which is good. So if you want to use that term age of accountability, I, I guess you can. But uh, this also probably overlaps with the issue of do babies go to heaven um, because of the age of accountability. I, I, would, I would keep those a little bit more separate. Uh, but if you, if you corner me, I would say, yes, there's an age of accountability. If you say, what age is that? Uh, not even going near that. I would assume low, you know, aim low. Because uh, there's a difference between a, a, a one-year-old that wants the cookie and his sin nature says, I'm going to have that cookie at all costs. All he's thinking about is the cookie. And they are at that age, by definition, you can't reason with them. I always laugh when parents say, now that's inappropriate. You know what? You know, they don't know what that is. They just want the cookie. They don't know that it's their sin nature driving them to, to grab that cookie. All they know is, is that the last five times I've reached for a cookie, uh, mommy has only spanked me twice, so I'm rolling the dice on this one because I really want the cookie. A 10-year-old lies to his mom and says, no, I haven't had a cookie yet, and goes and gets the cookie at 3 o'clock in the morning, sneaking around the house because he is purposefully... Uh, purposefully rebelling against authority in his life. So, so if you're watching for this in your own kids, there's no such thing as, as innocent sin, obviously, but there is an innocence in terms of the, the little kid is not rebelling. You know, when, one of my favorite things as a pastor is that parents with small kids, they always want their kids to be nice to me. And I love that. I love our kids. I have nicknames for probably 50 kids in our church. And, but it never fails. Your kid has said, hello, good morning, to a hundred people in a row. And when they come up to me, they're like, and they, they just, uh, they freeze. And so parents are like, oh, don't, don't do that. You know, this is the pastor. Like it's uh, somehow more special. Um, the, the kid isn't going, this is the pastor. I am rebelling against Christ and therefore I shall. He's just, he's just scared or he's just intimidated or he wonders where all the hair went. I, <laughs> I, I love to ask little kids, can I have some of your hair? They're like, no, okay, I don't have any. So rather than worrying about where the age of accountability is, assume low and preach the gospel to your kids. And, and let them know, if you're not accountable to God now, you will be. There, there will be an age. So in, in thinking about that with, with parenting and, and children, um, how, much, how much of the gospel does someone need to 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 understand to be saved like when when thinking about maybe kids in particular or just generally it was a general question but like just talking about with kids how much do they need to understand to be saved well let me start with uh, the shocking answer um technically speaking no one needs to understand anything about the gospel to be saved jesus or, or god saved john the baptist and jeremiah in the womb before they understood anything that was god's choice to do that but I understand the gist of your question. How much of the gospel do they need to understand to be saved? Um, one of the great things about having little sinners running around in your house is that their own behavior is, is evidence of need for the gospel. 
and you're, you're telling them from a small age that there is a God, you're reading to, reading to them from the Bible, you're taking them to church, every child believes in God. You have to teach children not to believe in God. So, so telling them to believe in God isn't, isn't a, an issue. But they need to know that, that God is holy and that he doesn't like our sin. He hates our sin. And he wants you to stop sinning. And you can begin to lead a child down the discussion of, of but you can't stop sinning, can you? you it's impossible. And, and even, a, even a six-year-old can say, but I can't be perfect. That's a wide open door. Two double doors opened. You're right. And you know what Jesus said, that you must be perfect because my heavenly father is perfect. That presents a problem. And now the gospel is, is open to you um, to present I would say present as much of the gospel as, as you possibly can all the time and do so in simple terms. And, but don't gloss over sin. Don't say to your little ones, Jesus wants to be your friend. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, is that Jesus wants to save you from your sin and you are a sinner and daddy's a sinner and, and mommy's a sinner and your big brother, he's really a sinner. And... <laughs> And you're pointing out sin and I'm a sinner too. I needed Jesus. And part of my job as your daddy is to tell you that Jesus loves you and that he died on the cross to pay for your sin. Because even a small child can understand that the wages of sin is death. They can understand that. And so you tell them all the gospel you can. Um, I I wouldn't present high lofty concepts to them. I I don't think you present the the doctrine of election. Well, I hope you're chosen. You know, (laughs) No, you, you tell them the human responsibility end. Let them learn about the doctrine of election as they go. Uh, I, I think we love the doctrine of election after we're saved. We go, I'm saved because God chose me and that blows our mind. But you tell them the human responsibility part, that God wants you to love him enough to repent of your sin and, and wants you to worship him. Because every time you purposefully grab the cookie when mom said not to you're worshiping yourself and that's idolatry and so you point that out in scripture thank you very much thank you um just kind of transitioning a little bit to your um series um, through matthew here you've mentioned the idea of leaving your gift at the altar um multiple times from matthew 5 23 through 24 um well there's two questions in this that's the idea of, hey, if my brother has something against me. But then there's, there's other verses that, that indicate to us that we should go and, and confess our sins. So maybe, maybe we'll just start with the Matthew 5 verse. Um, is, is there ever a situation that uh, I shouldn't do this? Um, would, I be, would I be like opening up old wounds to do this? Or what, what do you think about that? Somebody who's saying, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's a good idea. That seems like a bad idea to, to go and, and ask them if they have something against you. With that. Okay, yeah, well, so, so we want to be clear here. Matthew 5 is speaking of a situation where you, uh, Jesus said, you know your brother has something against you. Mm-hmm. You know that's the case. Um, I, I, I would be way in favor of, of giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. I'd rather ask somebody, hey, just notice that the last time I passed you in the hallway, um, you rolled your eyes, elbowed me, and pushed me out of the way. Wondered if there was something to that. Um, oh, no, actually, there's this. So, so um, going to clarify with someone, um, if you know there's something, then there's no option. You, you go and you deal with it. Um, I, I think I know what you're getting at. Uh, do you go to somebody and say, just so you know, 
I pretty much hated your guts for 10 years, but I just wanted to ask for your forgiveness for that. You know, I, you know, I didn't know that. Um, so that, that's a wisdom matter. I think honestly, in my experience, not that this is everything, but anecdotally, sometimes when we do that, it's still to get a dig in at somebody that we don't really like, um, to, just, to just make them feel bad. Um, on the other hand, I've always appreciated it when someone comes to me and says, you know, I, I really have had some, some wicked thoughts and it, it has affected the way I've acted towards you and I'm really sorry for that and that's going to change. So there's a wisdom there, but I, I'm not in favor of taking one Bible verse and making that the end all on the end all and be all on all relationships. You take all of Proverbs, you take Matthew 18, you take Ephesians 4, you take 1 Peter 5, uh, 1 Peter 4 rather, and, um, and of course Matthew 5. Everything the Bible has to say about relationships um, really could be boiled down to one word, and that is humility. That if you're being humble, then uh, you're going to go to somebody. I, I think the more humble you're, you're, you're striving to be, the more sensitive you're going to be. And maybe you are asking those questions. Maybe you're realizing, um, and I've seen Christians like this, that they leave bridges burning around them all, all over the place. And if that's you, then you need to go back and start repairing those bridges. Yeah, you, you, did, uh, you did know where I was going with that. But now I don't get to ask the fun question. You can ask the fun question. Okay, well, uh, say, say, like I go to someone and say, I'm, I've been jealous and resentful of your beauty for 10 years now. I mean, I wouldn't say that, obviously. Um, <laughs> look at me. Uh, but uh, but you'd, you'd see that kind of as a, a, a sinful action. And so what should I do when I have those feelings of maybe jealousy and envy and it, it might be a sin? to go to them and confess those things. Well, here, okay, so here's an interesting thing. Romans 12, um, we dealt with this a week or two ago, it, it speaks about how you treat your enemies. And it's always been a bit of an enigmatic uh, passage because the context of Romans 12 is how we behave in the church. Well, I don't have any enemies in the church. Sit in my seat for a few years and you'll find out that people have enemies in the church. But what it doesn't specify is is that person treating me like an enemy or have I been thinking them, of them as an enemy? As somebody that I'm more distant with, somebody I don't like. And what is Paul's admonition? He said that you, you draw near to them, that you uh, serve them, you feed them if they're hungry, you give them water if they're thirsty, you, you heap hot coals on them. So if, if you've been having a problem with resentment and anger and bitterness toward another person, Probably going and telling them that may be a sinful act, but drawing near to them and saying, you know, I, I, I want to intentionally love you more, and how can I serve you? How could I, how could I pour into your life? That draws you near, and what that does is that makes those sinful uh, tendencies dissipate, and you really are repenting before the Lord. And maybe at a the point they say, just curious, you've mown my lawn every day this summer, uh, and you know what's behind that? Well, to be honest with you, my attitude with you has been really sinful. It's been horrible. And I'm trying to obey Romans 12, and I'm trying to draw near to you and show you that I love you. Thank you. So that does explain why Russell mowed my lawn a few summers ago. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that, but uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, let's just open a, a big can of worms. Oh, good. Um, back, to, back to the ordination here. Uh, um, you hold a very high view of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. So, for, for example, 
no one's ever heard you uh, express your opinions or your thoughts. Um, um, you basically say the New Testament never takes the Old Testament out of context and it never reinterprets it. So there was one question that was very interesting. Um, why does it appear, this person asks, as though Paul is misquoting um, Psalm 68.18 in Ephesians 4.8, or at least taking it out of context? It, se- it seems like a very odd proof text to give. So, for, for example, just to read it here, in, in Psalm 68, Psalm 68, uh, 17, the chariots of gods are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that Yah, God, may dwell there. So you, you see that you have received gifts. You've ascended on high. You've received gifts. But then Paul, in quoting that in Ephesians uh, four, four eight. Uh, he says, "That's uh, Ephesians three eight. That wouldn't be helpful." Uh, Ephesians four eight says, "Therefore it says he ascended on high. He led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men." So you you see, he kind of changes it. It seems like he he received versus he gave. Why why would Paul use this text? Uh, to kind of show Christ giving gifts of apostles and, and prophets and teachers and all those kinds of things. Yeah, so um, this is one of those questions where the, that, the question about that particular text, the use of Psalm sixty-eight eighteen in Ephesians 4, 8, that's kind of the top of the pyramid. Um, but you have to look at the bottom of the pyramid. First of all, there's a reason that this is even a debate. Um, the reason that the New Testament's use of the Old Testament is a debate is not because um, there's just a, an objective academic interest in wondering about that. The reason there's a debate is because certain forms of theology want to be able to reinterpret the Old Testament to fit their theological system. And so what they feel the strongest argument they can make is, well, the New Testament writers reinterpreted the Old Testament, therefore I can as well. So just to be really clear, that's the reason for the whole debate in the first place. Um, the average church member, uh, one of our professors in seminary used to always say that the Bible is the safest in the laps of the church member. Because you don't go to work going, you know, I think I'll think about whether or not the New Testament reinterprets the Old. You would assume it doesn't. Um, you would assume that. So that's the reason for the debate. So just to be clear, it's not, a, it's not a, uh, an objective just kind of a detached theological question. It's a question with an agenda that if I can show that New Testament authors reinterpreted the Old Testament and took it out of context, which means now that it's an inspired text, that it's okay to take the Old Testament out of context, then I can do things like say that when God told Abraham in Genesis 15, here is the map of the land I'm going to give you and your people that now the land just means the new heavens and new earth, and, or land means uh, the church, that I can reinterpret it as well. So just to be really clear, there's a motive, there's an agenda behind that question. Um, and so then what, what happens is, is that uh, people naturally go to the most difficult cases. And I'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, just to kind of put this in context, there is... Uh, there's a variety of ways of counting how many times the New Testament um, quotes or cites the Old Testament. Um, 
I, I tend toward the higher number, which is around 360 times. That's easy to remember because that's the same number of days in the Jewish calendar. So um, about 360 times. Out of those 360 times, uh, well, let me back up. First of all, that's not even counting uh, allusions and, and just indirect references to the Old Testament. By the time you add direct quotations and allusions, the New Testament is made up of 10% Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's a huge number, but let's just stay with the, with the quotations for a minute. Um, 360 times. And before I get into some statistics on that, uh, we have, and people in that camp have imposed a rule on the New Testament that isn't there. And the rule is, is that if you don't quote something exactly, then you're taking it out of the context or there's a mistake in Scripture. Uh, I've, I've said numbers of times from the pulpit, Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together uh, for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Did I just quote Romans 8.28 exactly? No. Did I represent accurately the meaning of the text? I did. So the rule that you must quote uh, exactly for it to be accurate, that's a, that's a self-imposed rule. And uh, the New Testament writers don't often, they don't always do that. In fact, sometimes they'll substitute a pronoun for a proper noun and vice versa because it, it fits the sentence or fits their, their situation. Also, when you see in your Bible, very often a quotation or a citation will be in all caps. Just because the publisher of our English Bible put it in all caps doesn't mean, well, if it's not an exact quotation, then something's wrong or it's, or it's out of context. So that number, 360 times that the New Testament quotes or cites very, very close to a quote, um, the Old Testament. Out of those 360, there are 14 that are fairly debatable as to whether they're taken out of context or not. Out of those 14, half of them, seven, are the, the, the big ones. The big ones that seem to have a major issue. And out of those seven... You know how many of them have no plausible explanation for how the New Testament writer could have been using the Old Testament context? Zero. There is always a plausible explanation. So you have 7 out of 360 that are actually pretty difficult. That's 1.94%. So the first thing I have to say is no way do you say, well, I can take the Old Testament out of context because New Testament writers did it. 1.94% 1.94% of the time. Even if they did it seven times, that New Testament writing is now an addition to Old Testament, uh, Old Testament revelation. It is added to the knowledge. Never would we say did it change it. So you have to understand the agenda, understand the, the statistics. Uh, I'm not basing anything on something that is going to be successful 1.94% of the time. You, you wouldn't do anything in your life based on statistics like that. Yet, by saying, well, New Testament writers have taken the Old Testament out of context, therefore I can too, that argument does not hold any water whatsoever. Um, Dr. Abner Chow at the Master's University um, four or five years ago uh, wrote a book called The Hermeneutics of the Biblical Writers. And he makes an airtight case in a book about an inch thick that, that no, there is no instance whatsoever of a New Testament passage taking Old Testament out of context. But you do make a good point. Uh, Psalm 68, 18 says that 
this person received gifts. And Paul quotes or cites, however you want to put it, in Ephesians 4.8 saying that this person gave gifts. So what do you do with that? Aha! First of all, you remember that seven that I mentioned? That one's one of them. So, that, so if you want to go to the most difficult one, that's fine. The argument is that Psalm 68 seems to have nothing to do with Ephesians 4.8. That, that Paul's just pulling this out because it seems to come out of thin air. And admittedly, Psalm 68, um, one psalm scholar says it is the most difficult psalm to interpret. It is the most obscure. If you look at it long enough, though, basically, especially that section around verses 17, 18, and 19 that, that you read, it is the story of a triumphant God triumphing over his enemies, ascending on high, that's what the text says in, in Psalm 68, and receiving gifts to himself, the, the spoils of war. Um, this is clearly messianic. Why? Because Paul says it is. So this is a messianic psalm. So how is Paul using Psalm 68? And the argument that they don't have anything to do with each other uh, actually doesn't hold any water. They, um, Paul gives a, uh, a connection at three different points. First point is ascension. You have Paul's point is that Jesus ascended on high, the ascension of Christ, Psalm 68, he ascended on high. The second point is victory, victory over his enemies. Um, the, the, this is, a, this is a, a victory celebration, a victory parade, both Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4, that the, the ascension of Christ was very much a, an act of victory. Um, so you have, you have the ascension, you have victory. Then there's a third connection point, and that's the gifts. Um, and then that's where you run into the difficulty. Wait, did he receive gifts or did he give gifts? Let me come back to that in just a minute. Um, Abner Chow, and I, I'm gonna, I don't want to butcher this book. You get it for yourself. But let me boil down to three different examples. Um, <clears throat> what did Jesus think of the Old Testament? Did he ever reinterpret the Old Testament? Luke 24, he's on the road to Emmaus. And the, the two disciples uh, are wondering what's happened with the resurrection or with the, with the death of Christ. And the text says that he explained from Moses and the prophets, that's the whole Old Testament, the things concerning himself. That's a two and a half hour long sermon because that's how long it takes to walk from Emmaus uh, to Jerusalem or back and forth. There's no sense at all that he said, let me explain what it means now. The meaning didn't change. The Apostle Paul, Acts 26, 1 and 2. He's on trial and he says that he explained from the law or from Moses and the prophets the, th the things concerning Christ. He didn't say this is what they mean now. So you say, well, okay, uh, uh, that's fine. What about the Old Testament writers themselves? I tend to think most Christians have a, a view that the Old Testament writers were sort of in this fog uh, and they just like, oh, and they wrote stuff down. Um, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 says that they inquired carefully the things about which the Spirit of Christ was telling them. In other words, they knew what they were writing and they knew for whom they were writing. You know who they were writing for? For you. That's what it says. They were writing for you. You ask Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, well, did what you write change? They would say, I beg your pardon? I inquired carefully about the things that the Spirit of Christ... In other words, they knew what they were writing. 
So when Psalm 68 is written, it's not just some fog. The writer of Psalm 68 knows he's writing of a future Messiah who also will ascend on high, who also will be victorious, and who also will, uh, will deal with gifts. Okay, did he receive gifts or did he give gifts? Yes. What were the spoils of war in Psalm 68? The spoils of war are captives, people that he has taken. Jesus has taken captives, hasn't he? Who are they? We're sitting right here. And aren't you glad you're a captive of Christ? And out of the bounty of captives that he has received, he has also given gifts of men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So did he receive gifts or did he give gifts? Paul gives us progressive revelation to help us understand. Psalm 68 tells us he received gifts. Ephesians 4.8 tells us, and out of those gifts he received, he also gave gifts to the church. And so it actually harmonizes beautifully. I love Chow on that part. That's really good. Um, I, I always, I, lo- I love what, what Chow says somewhere in that book. And it's kind of something that I've tried to internalize even in my own thinking about this. Like sometimes if I'm, if I'm having difficulty in the New Testament with something or with the, the, old, the Old Testament in the New Testament, it probably is because I am not understanding the Old Testament very well. I'm That's not right. seeing the flow and how everything connects and leading up to that. And I just like, man, that got my yeah, attention. Well, and, yeah. and remember this too, there are, there are original readers to the Old Testament. There are original readers to the land promises. Uh, on, the, on the banks of the the Jordan River on the plains of Moab, Moses stood and he, he gave the law and he told the story of Abraham telling, or, or God telling Abraham, I will give you a land. And imagine this, Moses could say, and there it is. Ask any of those faithful Israelites, the faithful ones who went into the land and, and obeyed God and were covenant, covenant faithful um, believers, ask any of them today because they're alive today. They're just not here with us. Well, what do you think of the land promises actually equaling the church? That would, that would, I think that would raise ire and indignation because it would say, well, if, that, if, if it doesn't mean what it meant when I read it originally or heard it read, then God lied to me. So uh, we're, we're pretty, pretty, pretty big on that. And I think when you go back to the original, the motivation to say, well, we can change what the Old Testament means is because that's the only way you can make it fit your theological system. And that's backwards. Um, uh, okay, well, let's, let's transition again. Uh, just uh, one more, maybe two more questions. Um, what would you say um, to someone who says, um, if you never see any spiritual fruit in your life or the life of your loved one, what should you do? Yeah, it's two, uh, two different questions. Let me divide it out. If you never see any spiritual fruit in your life, then 2 Corinthians 13.5 applies to you. Test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. Um, spiritual fruit is fruit from the Holy Spirit. If there is no fruit of the Spirit, you don't have the Spirit. Or you're just in such a state of rebellion that you've decided on purpose, I'm not going to dist- uh, uh, show and demonstrate love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things have no part of my life. Um, That would say that you ought to doubt your salvation. Um, Assurance of salvation is not something given to anybody who claims to be a Christian. Assurance of salvation is given to those who are demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. 
Um, what about you don't see it in someone else's life? Uh, you apply 2 Corinthians 13.5. And this is a hard conversation to have. To say, you know, you go to church, but I don't see any other evidence of Christ in your life. You, you, there's no, no sense in which you're really seeking, seeking after Christ, and I'm concerned about that. You're, you seem to be a cultural Christian, and in Matthew 7, they're going to appear before Christ, and he's going to say to the cultural Christian, depart from me, I never knew you. So you express your concern. All right, uh, one, one more question. Um, this is actually uh, from Tate Trovato, who would like to remain anonymous. not even here shoot all right anyway um please please comment on uh, pastor david's beard um would you like me to shave it off and give you some of it for your head um, I, i'll tell you what um i'll answer the second part of your question first the, the millennial kingdom and I, and I don't i don't say this just because uh, i i love the subject and that i'm preaching on it right now uh, it is such a joy to think about to me because I, I, I think about the millennium every day of my life. Um, you just read the news and see what our government's doing and I think the government will be upon his shoulders. Um, but our, the promises of everything being restored to us is, are so glorious that I, I just, we just don't worry about it that much. You know, I mean, if you're to the point where you have more electronic and bionic parts in you than, than your real body, I, I mean, what, why? You know, I, I don't understand that. That's fine if you want to do that, but, but I don't want to do that. But as far as your beard, um, <laughs> I'm just glad we have a student ministries pastor who's capable of growing a beard. <laughs> because uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of churches that think that uh, youth ministry needs to be by someone who's, who's super cool and young and youthful and they can make these cool <laughs> hand symbols. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, but you, yeah, I mean, go go on go on a lot of the typical church websites, and you see the pastor, and he's you know forty or fifty or seventy five, and then and then the youth pastor, you're, you're like you're still in diapers, and why why are you ministering? So uh, youthfulness is not a qualification um, to to turn something funny a little more serious. Um, I'm proud of the fact that our youth pastor is a fully qualified elder in the Church of Jesus Christ. That's who I want our kids around, is somebody who's going to disciple them. Um, admittedly, the most goofball elder I've ever known, uh, which, which I love. Um, but uh, so should you shave it off? I, I, I like that was the... not the question. <laughs> that was not the question. That the, was not the, the answer is simple. It depends on what your wife thinks. So, so. <laughs> Well, thank I, I've you. got time for one more or two if there. If one there more is. or two, yeah. I can give you one more yeah. or two. Um, I got plenty. I got plenty. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, here's a good one. Um, so one member asks, "My fan, my finances are a mess. Uh, what does the church offer to help me get my money under control? Um, uh, should I educate my children on this? Uh, what kind of debt is appropriate or wrong? Like, talk a little bit about uh, financial difficulties." Yeah, that's a, you know, every, every situation is totally different. And this is an area where it becomes really fast to become legalists or really easy to become legalists really fast. Um, that if you, if you do things the way I do it, then you're right. And if you do things the way they do it, then you're wrong. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, the question about debt, we, we live in an economic system where 
if you, the average price of a home in our country is about $400,000 right now. Um, so if you say, well, I'm going to save $400,000, by the time you do that, same house costs $800,000. Um, so it becomes hard to, to operate without debt at some level. Um, and no, we don't take uh, Romans 13.8 out of context. It says, oh, no one, anything that has to do with honor, it has to do with obedience, um, has nothing to do with finances. But as far as what the church offers, you know, your, your money is the same as your time. It's the same as your, your talent and your service. It's something that you steward um, for the glory of God. So, uh, you know, there, there are numbers of people in our church that we've uh, shepherded. We'll have an elder or a, or a mature man in the church just get with them and, and help them with that. But, but I will say this. Um, I've worked with a lot of believers who are, are struggling with their finances. And one of the questions that I like to ask is, how much are you giving? Um, and I've seen the misnomer of, well, I'll start giving as soon as things get back under control. And that usually never happens. And that's really just backwards. Um, everything you own, Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, everything in it. So giving is an act of saying, I'm going to give something I don't even have or something that I, I, I don't think I, I can have. And I've asked guys this. They say, well, I just can't give right now. Well, can you give a dollar? Can you give, can you give a dollar? And you have to have, that, that's an act of faith. Um, when we started our Joyful Generosity uh, campaign a few years ago. I, I've heard so many stories from many of you who decided to give joyfully and um, sacrificially and how the Lord just provided even more. I mean, Second Corinthians 8 and 9 is very clear on that. So there may be a spiritual issue, and the spiritual issue is that I am, I am clinging to my belief that money will give me security. That's a spiritual issue, and that's part of what we would want to counsel somebody through. If somebody just doesn't know how to balance their checkbook, then, I mean, we can help with that too, but um, the spiritual issue is what we're more concerned with. Um, the most idolatrous people when it concerns money are not necessarily wealthy people. Sometimes idolatry creeps in when you don't have any money, and all you can dream of is that if I had more, then I would be happy, and that's just not the case. So, yeah, we would love to help with that. Okay, thank you. Um, another question. Um, what would you tell parents that feel like their kids are out of control, um, regardless of how much they spank or how many things they take away? Uh, those kids are just never under control, and, and maybe even they don't feel like they can um, come and put their children in children's ministry because they just are out of control. What would you tell those parents? Yeah, that's, you know, if you've had, if you've had multiple kids, you know that there's always that one. You think, are you, are you, wh- where are you from? Because you just, wh- what's going on? I had a um, sister like that. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the, the kid that's born, you know, with, with, with his fists up and he's, he's ready to go. And we all have those. So there's a couple ways to think about that. Um, at, at the top of the list is to ask the question, what is the purpose for parenting? The purpose for parenting, obviously we're fulfilling God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply, but, but the purpose, the drive behind your parenting is not to create kids that are well-behaved. That's the result. That's not the purpose. The purpose of parenting is to glorify God by obeying Him and by saying that, okay, the Bible says to discipline with the rod, you will not kill your child. So you discipline with the rod. Um, Book of Proverbs has some good verses on discipline, lots and lots of verses about teaching your kids. So the first thing has to be philosophically, I parent to the glory of God 
not to create kids that are, are good little kids. In fact, you can kind of mess up your kids if you teach them that the whole goal of their life is to make mommy and daddy happy. Um, no, that's not the goal. The goal is for them to obey God. Um, so you have to, you have to shift. You, your purpose for disciplining your children is to obey the Lord. What they do with that ultimately is between them and God. And uh, some kids will respond really well. Others don't respond. Um, some of you here are old enough to have had conversations with 25, 30, and 40-year-old kids who are just as rotten now as they were when they were five. And now as adults, you just say, this is what I warned you about 30 years ago. And you're still going down this road, but now you're responsible. Parents are very much the, the buffer between God and kids. And, uh, and I think it's great for parents to tell their kids, you know, you're taking all these spankings from me and you're not responding. This is nothing compared to what God's going to do to you if you won't respond to him. And it becomes a gospel opportunity. But as far as the, the practicality of parenting, if you have multiple kids and all of them are chaotic and, and disobedient, then that's your fault. <laughs> that's not theirs. Um, and that just means you need to look at crafting a life that's more conducive to obedience. Um, it, the old saying is, uh, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, disciplining kids is just one little piece of the pie. You also have um, managing their time well and making sure they're, they're uh, sleeping and making sure that your, your family is predictable. Little kids thrive on predictability. Um, they need to know that there's a, an approximate bedtime. They need to know that meals happen at certain times. They need routine and all that. And when kids don't have routine, um, they express that fear and that lack of uh, certainty with their behavior. Because a four-year-old can't come up to you and say, you know, Mom, I've just been concerned about the fact that our schedule seems a little chaotic. They're, no, I'm just going to throw a tennis ball through a window because I'm feeling chaotic. <laughs> So a lot of times if you feel like, man, my home's just a mess, well, then how can you, how can you declutter your life? And, and so one purpose for parenting or one, one avenue is to, to look at the whole pie, not just the discipline. If you say no matter how much I spank, well, are you, are you also speaking about sin? Are you teaching? Are you having family worship? Are you teaching your kids in your home? Is there a huge disconnect between church and your home? Um, uh, I, I'm amazed three-year-olds can sit and sing a hymn and they can listen to the Bible be read and they can sit through a prayer because even, even three-year-olds have a sense of the, of the divine, a sense of the sacred, if you'll teach them that. But there's another reason you parent um, and that is for the sake of those around you as well, that it's unkind for you to not discipline your kids because if your kid is being horrible to everyone else's kid and you're not disciplining now you as a parent, you're sinning against those other parents. Um, at the very least, other parents, it's not right to expect that you have a perfect kid, but it is reasonable to expect that you discipline uh, if there is a problem. Um, if you don't do that, then you're being unkind and you're saying, my kid's more important than your kid. Or my, my, uh, my weird philosophy of trying to explain logic to a 19-month-old uh, is more important than whether or not uh, you know, he's being you know, a terror in the nursery or, or whatever. So um, putting all those things together, first you parent to the glory of God. You also manage your whole life, not just your discipline uh, in a way that's godly. And then you think about others and you teach your kids to do the same. Thank you. That's good. It really hits home. <laughs>
Um, we have time for one more, maybe? Yeah, I'll one do more. it. I, I, there was uh, one question from a, a dear saint among us. I, maybe you could kind of... You can do this. You're, you're brilliant at this. So use this as a, as a, a way to make an a encouraging conclusion to us. Okay. <laughs> this is going to be fun. Uh, all right, ready? All right. What does it mean to have your name blotted out in uh, Revelation 3, verse 5? It seems to suggest, this is serious, uh, it seems to suggest that Christians can be removed from the book of life. So what is the, what's the piece of assurance in that? But what also is going on there to have your name blotted out from the book of life? Yeah, so this is a, this is a classic case of asking the question, how do you interpret scripture? Um, and one, one, of the, one of the bedrock foundational uh, foundation stones of a proper hermeneutic is that the more clear scriptures always interpret the less clear. And you also don't create an entire theological system based on one verse. And, and admittedly, that's a terrifying verse. Um, I'd put that right up there with Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, which seems to say that somebody can be really, really Christian and then become not a Christian. Um, but if you look carefully at it, all the descriptors in Hebrews 4 or Hebrews 6, um, are, are things like have tasted of the good word of God and so forth. These are, these are descriptors not ever said to be of a Christian, just of somebody who's been really close to Christians a lot. Um, the context of, the, of being, your name being blotted out of the book of life, there's not just the book of life. Revelation also has some other important books. Um, these are the books that are opened when uh, you're, you're judged at Revelation 20. So those two books in juxtaposition to one another. If your name is in the book of life, then the book of the horrible deeds of your life is blotted out. If the book of the deeds of your horrible life is not blotted out, then your name is blotted out of the book of life. There's a comparison going on there. You cannot say from one verse that this means that well, some of you were going to be saved, but God erased your name from the book of life. It's a, it's a metaphor for the fact that you're in one or the other of the books. You can't be in both, if that makes sense. So the encouragement to me is to know that the more clear verses are verses like Ephesians 1 that says that God chose me before the foundation of the world. First um, Peter 1, that he caused me to be born again. Um, the, the plethora of, of verses, Jesus saying that of all those that I have chosen, I will not lose one. Um, in, in John's gospel, he says, I won't drop one out of my hand and the Father won't drop one out of his hand. This is sort of this word picture of, of you as a saint being in the hand of Christ who is in the hand of God the Father. You can't get out. As soon as you're stronger than Christ and stronger than God the Father, then you can, uh, you can lose your salvation. So it, it's, not a, it's not a literal reference to, well, all these people were in the book of life and now God is going with his big eraser. It's, it's in juxtaposition to the books that are opened. If the books that are opened are filled with all your deeds and you're going to be held accountable for them, your name is not in the book of life. But if you're in the book of life, the, the books, so to speak, that have your name on it are empty. There's nothing in them. Nothing whatsoever. So that's how I would be encouraging that um, 
If your name is in the book of life, it won't be blotted out because it's there. One little thing with this. That particular word picture always gives us a a direction toward human responsibility. There will be no person standing before God, standing before the judge, Jesus Christ, at the great white throne judgment, saying, but I, I wanted to be a Christian. I wanted to be in the book of life, but, but you blotted me out. No, human responsibility says this. The means by which God rejects the reprobate, God rejects the one who is not saved, the means that he does that is the proper judgment of your own sin. That you have hated the law of God, you've hated the God, God of the law, and so therefore, his offer of salvation was real. It was genuine. But you were never going to take it because you never wanted to. Um, we said this the other day, that um, the, the Christian will have his ultimate, uh, his ultimate desire fulfilled. The ultimate desire is found in Psalm 23, 6, that I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. And the non-Christian will have their ultimate desire fulfilled also. I will not dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. So does that teach you can lose your salvation? Absolutely not. It's a juxtaposition between the book of life that we praise the Lord we're in because the books with my name on it are empty. But if your books are full of all the sins you've ever thought, done, and said, your name is not in the book of life. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Um, could you just close us in prayer? Sure, I would love to. Our Father, I, I sit up here just literally holding a Bible in my hand that contains glorious eternal truths never to be fathomed fully. Every person here owns a Bible small enough to carry around with one hand. And yet in the pages of this book, we are introduced to the marvels of a God who is eternal, who has always been, a God who is three persons in one God, who is God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. You are a God who has modeled yourself in our lives. You have created human marriage that replicates a Trinitarian-like relationship. You have created children that replicates the glorious love between God the Father and God the Son. You have created a world that reflects your glory and we get to enjoy it. And we know this only because of the words of Scripture. We know all the glorious things we've had a chance to touch on tonight only because we hold in our hand the very words of Christ, the very thoughts of God pinned by means of the Holy Spirit. And so we're so thankful that you did not leave us to guess, to hope that we might understand how to please God. But all the way in the opening chapters of Scripture, you promised a Savior. And we have a fourfold record of the coming of that Savior and hundreds of predictions of His coming. And we see the ultimate outworking of His coming when He returns in glory. And so we thank You that this little book that we hold in our hands literally is the key to eternity for us. 
And my prayer for our little church here, Lord, is that we would walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, that we would walk in the manner worthy of the gospel, that we would seek to love you and to know you and to be filled with gratitude that before the foundation of the world, you chose some for salvation. That, that is a thought beyond measure. We, we can't wrap our minds around it because you only give one reason. And that is your love. Lord, I pray for your encouragement on every person here that this coming week we would walk in your love, we would walk in the, the marvelous truth that before you made the heavens and the earth, our names were written in the book of life. And because of the promise of Christ and because of the permanency of salvation, never will we be at odds with you again. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We revel in that and we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for this time, this little family time we've had tonight. I pray that it was useful to some and that we just bond together as the family of God on this earth. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.